title of today's message is why we need to talk about holiness. And this is the sixth teaching, asking the question why. It's kind of transitioned into a statement. I could have said, why, why should we talk about holiness? But why we need to talk about holiness, I think, is more appropriate. So this will be our sixth teaching. Probably I'll do seven, the number of completion, and then we'll see what book we go through together. Maybe you guys have heard the song Holiness. We sang it in church, at least I did, I believe growing up, or I heard it on the radio. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want for me. It goes on to say, take my heart and mold it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it. To yours, to yours, O Lord. Have you guys ever heard that song? I want to bring it back. When Leah gets back home, I'm going to run it by her, see if it's within her vocal range, and maybe bring that song back. But it's a great prayer. Holiness, it's what I long for. Do we long for holiness in our lives? Why should we long for holiness? Why do we need holiness? Why does God want holiness for us? Why do we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? And in that prayer right before that, Lord, hallowed be your name. What does that mean, hallowed? be your name. It means to proclaim God as holy. Holy is your name, Lord. Sacred is your name. You're separate, Lord. You are far and above and beyond us. Isaiah 55, 9 says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes when we pray, we sing, we even preach or talk about God, we forget just how awesome and how outside and distant and magnificent and he is holy in a way and set apart in a way that we can't even fully comprehend yet he calls us to be holy as he is holy we are his children we are his image bearers in this world we should be reflecting him properly to this world it's very very important and we're commanded to worship him in fear and trembling I heard a pastor online mention how during a worship service at his church, during an Easter worship service, they played the song Highway to Hell by ACDC. Highway to Hell during a worship service. This is a pastor who is an evangelical pastor, good friends with Stephen Furtick and others that names you would know. 36,000 people at this time were listening to him through the church in front of him, satellite churches, 36,000 people on a given Sunday were listening to this pastor. And he was proud to say, we sang Highway to Hell. And it created a lot of controversy within the church, even outside the church. And there was an article by the Christian Post and they asked him, would you do it again? And he said, well, I would just do it differently. I would play the song Hell's Bells as well and do something a little differently. And he chuckled about it and And it's like, where is holiness in the church? Where is the reverence and awe of God to where a pastor could even think to play this kind of music during a worship service? And it may not be a surprise that a couple years later, he was defrocked of his pastorship. He was shown to be a drunkard. He got divorced. And the rest of the story is not that great. So we need to be holy. God commands us to holiness. And some people say, well, that's archaic. That's old fashioned. Get with the times. And that's what this pastor is all about. Get with the times. I mean, we need to reach people. They know this kind of music. So let's play this music in our church. And it's all backwards today in many churches and hopefully not here ever. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive, it means to aggressively chase, to pursue intensely, pursue intensely peace with everybody. And also the holiness, the hagiosmos is the Greek word. It means to be transformed into Christ likeness. Pursue Christ likeness as a believer. Is that a pursuit in your life? Is that a pursuit in my life? A daily pursuit to be more like Christ. And I don't see that in many Christians I meet. At least I don't see it apparently. And the term Christian has almost lost its meaning anymore. 
you meet someone and they say you're a Christian, you have to ask a lot of questions. You have to spend a lot of time with them to really see whether they're a Christian or not because so many people just name the name of Christ, but you don't see holiness. You don't see this pursuit. You don't see agonizing, striving to be more like Jesus. Later in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29, it says we it commands us to serve God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And then many of you know the verses in chapter 10 of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. If we go on sinning willfully, the opposite of pursuing holiness, sinning willfully, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. And the writer to the Hebrews is referencing Isaiah 26, 11 there. Now I shared these verses with an old boss of mine at the rescue mission, and he was telling the guys in the program, hey, we have brothers that have left the rescue mission program, they're back on the streets, they're back doing drugs, they're back living for themselves, but they're still our brothers, okay? They're still following the Lord. Even though they're living in their sin and rebellion, they're still following the Lord. And I had a talk with the director one day and I pray for him still. I hope the best for him. I hope that he just preaches the entire counsel of God, that he preaches the gospel, that he loves the men there. He's still there. He's been promoted. He was a pastor for 25 years, worked side by side with Rick Warren, traveled the country and the world with Rick Warren. And I was in his office and he said, Nick, we have the same theology. We believe the same things. And I said, with all due respect, I don't know that we do. I said, you're telling the men that they can go back to live on the streets. They can live in their drug-addicted lifestyles and still call themselves Christians, that they're still brothers in the Lord. And so I shared Hebrews chapter 10, 26 and 27 with him. And I said, if we go on sinning willfully, we're not promised that, we're not promised salvation. We're not promised, we're not told that we're Christians. We're not, we don't have this assurance, but instead an expectation of judgment and the fury of fire. These are serious verses and I'm not hearing them in some places and in some Christians' lives, and I didn't hear it at my past job. And so what are we telling people if they go back to the world, go back to sin, and we tell them it's okay. You're still a Christian. You're still saved. That's very dangerous. And then what are we telling the men, like he was at the rescue mission, that are trying to fight and struggle and live for the Lord and are trying to live a holy life and are trying not to go back to the drugs and the past lifestyle that were, they were involved in, what are we telling them if we say, well, if you go back to that lifestyle, you're still a Christian. If you go back to that lifestyle and you live in sin, well, you're still saved. It's very, very dangerous, and that's why this topic is so important. If you'll turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Anytime you see that phrase in the Bible, let no one deceive you, be sure many are deceived and it should cause us to draw a lot closer attention than perhaps we do. Little, chil little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Verse eight, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Praise God for the second part of verse eight. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. First Peter 2.24 says, he bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. He came to set us free from sin. That's part of the gospel, part of why Jesus came to destroy the works of darkness, destroy the works of the devil so that he has no power over our lives anymore. We can't say the devil made me do it. If we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We can walk in the newness of life and the freedom that we have in Christ. Verse nine, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
I read one article that said, well, in the hyper grace movement, they don't believe that first John is written to Christians. So that's how they get around this book. That's how they get around these verses. And they can say, see, you can still be a Christian and practice sin, live in sin and all these things because first John isn't written to Christians. Pretty convenient, right? When you disagree with the Bible, just say, well, that's not written to us. Oh, that section of scripture, that's not for us. And then you can just make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And that's what many people are doing today. But of course, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to little children. Verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. For the one who does not love, nor the one who does not love his brother. So the point he's making here is that it's evident. It's evident who Christians are. It's evident who non-Christians are. Christians walk in righteousness. Christians live in righteousness. And those who do not live in righteousness, those who walk after the flesh, those who live in sin are of the devil. Wow, that's a weighty, sobering message. If you look at chapter two, verses four through six with me, chapter two, verse four, John says, the one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. These are good verses to share with someone that says, yeah, but I'm a Christian. I don't have to follow the Bible. I don't need to follow what Jesus said. I can just live however I want. Not according to John, verse five. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so he's not using the word holiness throughout this letter, but that's, he's speaking to that effect. If you want to call yourself a Christian, you need to walk as Jesus walked. You need to follow in his footsteps. You want to be more and should be more like Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be holy. Chapter 2 Verse nine, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. So he's laying out all these things. If you say you're in the light, if you say you're a Christian, if you say you're born of God, yet you're living like this, you're hating your brother, you're living in sin, you're not keeping God's commandments. And he's not talking about the Old Testament commandments because we know that we're set free from the law. He's talking about the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love your neighbor as yourself, which the New Testament says is a fulfillment of the law. When we obey the law of Christ, it will transform our life through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Chapter two, verse 15. You guys very, you guys are probably very, very familiar with this verse. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you get into a conversation, if you rub shoulders with people in the world long enough, you'll probably see what they're consumed with. You'll probably see what they're constantly talking about. Money, career, things of this world. I can go on and on, but, and things that aren't even bad in and of themselves, but that's their focus. That's their God, if you will. And we have the eternal, we have the Lord, and we should be focused on him and his word. And so that should be dominating our conversations and our lives when we're rubbing shoulders with not only people in the church, but with people outside the church. There's warning after warning in the Bible. I just went through several in 1 John and throughout the scripture, that share and tell us that there should be evidence in our lives. If you're a Christian, there should be evidence in your life that you are Christ. There should be evidence because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, right? And he's the one that empowers us to live for the Lord. He's the one that transforms our lives. And there will be a battle. So if you're in a battle, that's evidence that you are saved. If you're battling sin or maybe you've fallen into sin and then what happens with some Christians is then they start doubting if they're even Christians because they have fallen into sin and they go, am I even saved? If there is a struggle, if there's a battle, if there's a fight, this is one of the evidences that you are the Lord's. Because do people in the world fight sin? Do they battle with sin? Do they say, man, I really don't want to live in this sin. I really want to please the Lord and honor him. No, 
they usually just do what their flesh calls them to do and they live in sin and they walk in sin and so there should be this battle there should be this fight in our lives and we don't fight this battle in our own strengths we in our own strength we fight it by the power of the holy spirit living in us as the scripture says walk by the spirit and you will not give in to the desires of the flesh galatians chapter 5 so it's a dangerous soul damning teaching that has crept into many churches the one saved always saved doctrine or the hyper grace doctrine that you can just tip your hat to the Lord, live however you want, live like the world or live like the devil and still be saved. There's one pastor who wrote a book, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he went around and at his church just preaching, you don't need to add anything to the gospel, which is right in one sense. They get half of it right. We submit to the Lord, we believe in the gospel and we're saved. It's called justification, right? When you believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross and that he rose from the dead, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so they stop there and they go, see, you're saved. Jesus did it all. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So you sub submit to Jesus and that you confess with your mouth and now you're good. After that one confession, after that one submission to Jesus, the rest of your life, there's no more confession. The rest of your life, you're saved no matter what you do. Hyper grace is what it's called. Or once saved, always saved. And this person that wrote this book um, was fired from his church, got divorced, just like the other guy that I mentioned. And so right doctrine leads to right living. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. And what they're doing is they're picking and choosing what verses they want to use in the scripture and they're throwing out entire books of the Bible. It's very dangerous. So I'm thankful that as we pursue holiness with all our might through the power of the Holy Spirit because that's what we're commanded to do, we also realize that at times we will fall, fall short, right? It's not an excuse. It's not that we're abusing grace. It's just the reality of us being Christians in this fallen world, in the constant battle of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're not perfect. So I'm thankful for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, and I love how he says we, John is including himself, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm thankful for 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. The whole purpose of his letter is so that you don't sin, so that I don't sin. That's what we're to be striving for, to never sin again. We're leaving th this church today going, Lord, help me to never sin again. Help me to live as Jesus lived, perfect. But yet we're realistic. We understand that we might sin. And so John says, the second part of chapter two, verse one, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Greek word is parakletos. It means one who comes alongside, one who pleads our case. We have a legal advocate, so to speak, like a defense attorney. He's there interceding for us, as Romans 8.34 says. Satan's there in this metaphoric courtroom saying guilty. Look what you've done. You've fallen. You've sinned. God now hates you. You're damned and you're going to hell. And Satan's the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus steps in and he stamps paid in full and he shows with his blood what he's done for us. And so we're cleansed. We're righteous. Our advocate has made us anew. And that's what it says in verse 2, 1 John chapter 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice, not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. And then 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. I'm thankful for the promises that are in the scripture. He's not just beating us down for five chapters in 1 John. He's including the promises. He's including what Jesus did for us and that we can run to him, that we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us. Have you heard the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons in the Old Testament? 
in Exodus 28, God set them apart. God told Aaron and his sons, you are to minister to me. You are to be priests to me. And as you read Exodus 28 and the following chapters and the end of the book of Exodus leading up to Leviticus, God lays out these guidelines. He lays out all these specific guidelines. So some of us who have read through the Old Testament, we go, man, is it gonna move on yet? He, he's talking about, you need to dress like this. You need to have this in the temple, in the tabernacle. This many meters or this many cubits and this tall and this, and you're reading through it and it's just so detailed. It says in Exodus 28, two, that they're to have holy garments. And on, in Exodus 28, 36, Aaron is to wear a plate of pure gold. And God says, it's to be on your forehead, this plate of pure gold, so that when you go in and minister to me, this seal needs to be on this gold plate. Does anyone know what this seal states on Aaron's forehead? Holy to the Lord. So Aaron has this gold plate as he's going in to sacrifice to the Lord, and it says, holy to Yahweh. Holy to the Lord is engraved on this gold plate, a reminder that he is set apart unto God. Revelation 1.6 says that we've been made priests and kings unto our God. And in Revelation 22.4, it says we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. That's what we should think as we go into this world. His name is on us, holy unto the Lord. Is that how you view yourself, your walk with the Lord? What you think, what you see, what you watch, what you, however you live your life, holy to the Lord. So in Exodus 28, 41, God says you are consecrated unto the Lord. You are to be ordained and you are to wear this, these certain linen breeches. Exodus 28, 43, you need to adhere to these certain ceremonial guidelines because if you don't, God tells them, you will be guilty and you will die. So if you'll turn with me to the Leviticus chapter 10, let's read this story of Aaron's sons. A sobering story. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and to Elzaphon, the sons of Aaron's uncle, Uziel, and said to them, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to, out, to the outside of the camp, just as, as Moses had said. So how do you think they went in and ministered after that? Do you think they were willy-nilly messing around? Oh, let's, let's put some stuff on a fire pan and see if this pleases the Lord. Let's, let's worship God this way. Let's try something new today, Aaron. I think God shook them up a little bit, right? I think the fear of the Lord came upon all of them. Does this story remind you of any stories in the New Testament? Acts chapter five. So here in the Old Testament, God is beginning this covenant with them. This covenant that he gave them on Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to the Lord, brings down the 10 commandments. First time he throws down the commandments, breaks them, goes up again, gets a new set. God's beginning something here in this old covenant, this old Testament. And with that, he is to be feared. And you see the same thing in the new covenant. In the covenant, not with, the blood of goats and bulls, but the blood of Christ in Acts chapter five, the church is growing and God wants his church to be pure, just as he wanted his church, his congregation, his people to be pure in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter five, if you remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira, right? They go into the church setting and they say, here, Peter, look, we sold a plot of land. Here's all the money. And Ananias lays the money at Peter's feet, I'm sure making himself look holy. He's probably looking around, look at me, look at all this money I'm giving Peter. Yet Peter, is, it's revealed to Peter through the Holy Spirit that that's not the real amount of the land. 
And he, Peter says, look, the land was yours. You didn't have to sell it. But now that you're selling it, you're lying though. You're, you kept back some of the money for yourself. And you're, you're saying that you sold it for this amount and that instead you sold it for another amount than what you're giving to us today. And so he says, you have not lied to men. You've lied to God, the Holy Spirit. And so what happens to Ananias? He falls down. He's dead right in front of Peter. Peter says, drag him out. Just like this story. He grabs the people in the church. He says, okay, drag Ananias out. Just like Moses grabbed Aaron's uncles or Aaron's uncle Uziel and them. And he said, drag these bodies out. And then what happens three hours later? Ananias, his wife walks in. And Peter says the same story. How much was the plot of land sold for? And she agrees with her husband. They were conspiring together. I don't know why they would do that. I don't know if it's just to look cool in front of people and puff themselves up. But nevertheless, she falls down dead right there. And then they drag her out. And it says right after that, fear came over the entire church. God used that to say, my name is holy. I'm to be worshiped a certain way. I'm not to be messed around with. Some would say, but that was just a lie. They just lied to God. How could God do that to them? You, you could argue Adam and Eve just pulled a piece of fruit off the tree, right? And now look at the world. I mean, look at the statistics that I shared last week. And that was just the tip of the iceberg with what's going on in our world. All because Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord. And what is that? What, do I, what am I trying to get at with all of, it, of what I'm saying? God is holy. God is holy, holy, holy. One little sin, one little white lie, one little thing that we think, oh, that's not that big of a deal to an infinite, holy, awesome God. He takes it very, very seriously. And we better be sure that we understand this. If you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, just in case we didn't get the picture there in Leviticus 10, God tells us in Leviticus 11:44, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make for your make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you'll turn with me to Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, if you'll just look at a couple more with me. Leviticus 20, verse 7. You shall consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Then verse 26 of Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20, 26. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Are we seeing a theme here? Leviticus 21, verse 8. Last verse I'll share from Leviticus. You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. God's trying to get a point across. He could have said it once. Instead, he repeats himself throughout the book of Leviticus. I am to be worshiped a certain way. You are to be set apart. You are to be holy. You are to be different from the other nations of the world. And when you come into my tabernacle, when you offer a sacrifice, this is to be done a certain way because I am holy. So you are to be holy as well. The Greek word or the Hebrew word is kadosh, set apart, separate. It's used of God being holy, kadosh, and men being holy. And for God, it speaks of him being separate from human infirmity, impurity, and sin. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 96. So I woke up this morning and I was praying, Lord, how 
can we understand? How can we get a glimpse of your holiness? I was brought to Psalm 96 and I was reading Psalm 99 and then I started reading Psalm 97 and 98 and thought, why don't we read all of them? I remember the first time I preached, I told Leah, my wife, I'm gonna read a whole chapter today during my sermon. She's like, you're gonna read a whole, you're just gonna read a whole chapter? And it was almost like I was doing something like, you're, you're not allowed to do that. I'm like, why not? She did, I don't think she said those words, but it's like, this is the Bible. Like, can't we read it together? And I love what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. He says, until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. There's times where we just need to read the Bible. Let the Bible speak for itself. And as we're gonna read Psalm 96 through 99, they're short chapters. They're not that long, but we see God's holiness. We see how the psalmist uses, uses this exquisite, beautiful, lofty language to show us how far and above and holy and sacred and set apart God is. And so he'll mention God is this way and that way, therefore. And we often ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? When you come to a therefore in scripture, why is it there? What just came before it? And I didn't read a bunch of therefores in Psalm 96 through Psalm 99, but there's places where you can see where a therefore could be inserted. God is like this, therefore this is your response. God is this way, therefore the trees, the rocks, the streams, praise him. Let's look at Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his fullness. Chapter 97, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high all over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserve the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked light is sown like seed for the righteous and the gladness and gladness for the upright in heart be glad in the lord you righteous ones and give thanks to his holy name chapter 98 oh sing to the lord a new song for he has done wonderful things his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him the lord has made known his salvation he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. 
All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now chapter 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he, and the strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Beautiful Psalms. They should cause us to tremble, to fear him, to honor him, to worship him to love him. If the sea is roaring, if the rivers are clapping their hands and the mountains are singing for joy, then what should our response be? And I love what Jesus said when he was riding into Jerusalem, when the Pharisees and religious leaders tried to rebuke the disciples and those who were shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what was the divine response? If these don't cry out, the rocks will. And I love that. It should cause us to live holy lives. You see, I don't want to be yanking your arm and saying, live a holy life unto the Lord. Come on, serve the Lord. Evangelize. Speak out for those who are unborn and are being slaughtered in the womb and serve the church and do this and that and love your spouse and love your kids. And we shouldn't have our arms yanked to do things that we don't want to do. We should see God for who he is, be in awe of him, and out of that reverence that we have for him, we should want to serve him. We should want to love each other, and out of a natural response, we should want to pursue a holy life because he is holy. And so we even see in Psalm 18, Psalm 77, talks about the mountains, how they tremble. Joel 2, 1 Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Another song, right, that we sang growing up. At least I did. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Indeed, it is near. All throughout the Bible, we're commanded to tremble before this holy God. Perhaps you remember the story of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six when he sees the Lord high and lofty and seated on his throne and the angels around the Lord, the seraphim, and they're, they're putting their hands and f- covering their faces. And what is Isaiah, Isaiah's response in Isaiah six? He says, woe is me, I'm ruined. And then later on he says, here am I, after he's touched with the coal that comes from the presence of the Lord that the angel flies over to him and he goes I'm cleansed so here am I sends me he has an encounter with God he's never the same again in Habakkuk or however you pronounce it Habakkuk Habakkuk he had an encounter with God in chapter 3 verse 1 of Habakkuk and he said I have heard the report and I fear because if you remember the first couple chapters he's saying where are you Lord you say you're holy you say you're upright you say you judge equally and you, you you're fair why are your people being destroyed why is this happening in our land this is unjust lord you need to do something about this 
It's as if he's sticking his finger up at God like, it's time, where are you? And then God speaks to him and he says, I am in fear. In verse 16 of chapter three, he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place, I tremble. And then he says towards the end of the book, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. This encounter with the Lord transformed his life. Perhaps you remember Job. After chapter after chapter of Job going back and forth with these men that came to encourage him and help him, but rather they were miserable comforters. And he's going, I'm innocent. I don't understand. If only there was someone to intercede for me. And at times he's going, I don't understand, God, why this is happening to me. And it's almost as if he's pointing a finger at God as well. You get to chapter 40, and here's Job's response. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. How about Moses? Do you remember when Moses said in Exodus 33, show me your glory, Lord? I want to have this encounter. I want to see you, Lord. What's the divine response? If you see my face, you'll die. No one can see me and live. So he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock. He passes by. He covers Moses and he says, you can see my backside. That's all you can see and still live. In the next, in the next chapter, Exodus 34, we're told that Moses went up to the mountain 40 days, 40 nights, spent this time with the Lord. He comes down that mountain And he's glowing, literally. His face is shining. And it says in Exodus 34, the people were afraid to come near him. He had an encounter with God. He was never the same again. They had to put a veil over his face just so they could talk to him. Moses, can we get near you? Put that veil on because it's too bright if you don't. Amazing. Peter had an encounter with Jesus in Luke 5. This great catch. Jesus said, yeah, let down the net. He said that a couple times in the Gospels. Oh, Lord, we've been fishing all night. We haven't ca- caught anything. Put down the net. Psh, overflowing. Boat's about to tip over. What's Peter's response? He fell down at the feet of Jesus. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. When these men see the power, the glory, the holiness of God, they're undone. How about an evil spirit, an unclean spirit in Mark chapter one? He has an encounter with Jesus. He cries out, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. The demons tremble at the name of Jesus. So whether it's men, angels, demons, or any created thing, when they have an encounter with God, we are told in scripture they fall down, they cry out, they cover their faces, and they tremble before the thrice holy God. So what's our response? Have you had an encounter with the Lord? I mentioned at the men's retreat, if you stick your hand in an electric socket and you have an encounter with electricity, what's gonna happen? There's gonna be some sort of change in your life. Probably not a good one, right? but there's gonna be a change. And if we say we're Christians and if we say that we love the Lord, if we say that he is a holy, holy, holy God and yet we're not living that holy life, then there's some sort of disconnect and we need to get back into his presence. We need to see him for who he truly is and when we do that, it should radically transform our lives. Philippians chapter two's Philippians chapter two commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Psalm two says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So when we worship the Lord together, we should be trembling in awe of him. And I was thinking this morning, when we pray to the Lord, when we, there's usually not a lot of joking when we pray. You ever notice that? Typically, for the most part, when we pray, it's serious bow our heads or close our eyes. But then the moment we're done praying, sometimes it's like we can just joke around and mess around as if, well, God's not really hearing like, oh, I'm just preaching so I can just joke around the whole time and we can just do this however we want. But okay, now it's time to pray. Okay, let's get serious before the Lord. 
And I just think that God's looking down, like laughing, like what is going on? And maybe he's not laughing. Maybe he's angry with how we worship him. He takes it very seriously how we worship the Lord and we should do it in reverence and in awe and trembling before him. Of course, I'm not saying there's not a time for jokes. There's not a, sure, we don't want to just come into church like, oh, got to tremble before the Lord and put my head down and there's no times for smiles or laughs or, no, God wants us to be joyful, right? He wants us to be excited and praise him and all these verses that talk about those things. But I just believe there's an imbalance in our culture today, in the Christian culture which brings me back to Hebrews 12:14 Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. May this be our pursuit. May this be your goal in life to pursue this holiness. And may we not do it in our own power and may we do it from a place of victory. We're not doing this so that we can be saved. Oh man, if I just pursue this holiness, if I just muster up enough strength, then God will one day save me. He'll love me. It's done from a place of I am saved. I am loved. Jesus came and gave his life for me. And the moment I put my faith and trust in him, I was justified. I was made new. And now because he did that for me, I want to love him more. I want to pursue holiness. I want to be set apart. I want to be different from the world. I'm not ashamed. The other day, our next door neighbor came up to me and the kids and um, she said, hey, little kids, what are you going to be for Halloween? And my kids just stared up at her. Just like, looked at me like, "How, how are we to answer this, daddy? Because we don't dress up for Halloween. That's not something we do in our family. And so, and I didn't know how to respond because I just met her for the first time. And sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes when you live a holy life, people are going to think you're weird. That's okay. And maybe it'll be worse than people just thinking you're weird or frowning upon you. There might come a day when they say, we're going to throw you in jail. We're going to persecute you. We're going to kill you unless you do this or that. That day might come. But if I can't even in a little thing like that, say, I'm sorry, we don't celebrate Halloween and let me tell you why. Let me tell you about Jesus and let me tell you about the unfruitful works of darkness and let's have a conversation. Now, maybe I won't say those things in that order or that way, but it might open a door for a conversation about the Lord. And I think some of us, we could be afraid to live this holy life that God calls us to because we're afraid what people might think about us. And instead, it's, when we get to a place where we fear God and tremble before him, we won't fear man and tremble before them. And we'll just say, okay, Lord, what does it say in your book? How do you want me to live? And I'll do it because I love you. I tremble before you. I honor you. You're awesome. You're beautiful. You're amazing. Just show me, Lord, and I'll do it. And that's my prayer for us, that we would honor the Lord with our lives, that we would submit to him that we would do what Paul says in Philippians 1.20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He goes, you can't put me to shame. You can't put me to shame in anything because with all boldness, Christ will always be exalted in my body. I'm always exalting Christ whether I'm in jail and preaching to the jailmates or the Praetorium Guard or I'm preaching in Corinth or Thessalonica or wherever I go, Christ is on my mind. He's on my lips. He's, it's as if Paul is echoing what the Bible says about Aaron, holy unto the Lord. Paul's saying, that's me. You can't put me to shame. And that's my prayer for us. And we'd say, I'm not gonna be put to shame in anything. Th- these are my convictions. I'm living like this to the Lord and I don't care what the world says about it. I don't even care if there's people in the church that go, really, you don't watch that movie or you don't do this or that or you don't go over there? And I go, I'm holy unto the Lord. That's how God has shown me to live before him because there are things in the body of Christ where we might disagree on certain things. You might watch this movie or you might do this thing or that thing and I go, that's between you and the Lord. Just live holy unto him. 
read his word, submit to it, obey him, and have a clean conscience before him. And if you can do that and still do this, that, or the other, amen. This is how the Lord's convicted me. This is what the Lord showed me. This is how I'm gonna live to him. Because as Paul said, I'm not here to please man. If I was still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. I'm a slave of him. I'm living for him. I'm going after him. I'm pursuing him. I'm living for him. And I'm calling other people saying, let's go. Let's go live after him. Let's pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So that's my heart. That's my prayer for my life, your life, the church's lives. Let's fight. Let's struggle. Let's agonize. Let's pursue, aggressively chase after these things. And let's fight from a place of victory because the grave is empty. Jesus rose. He conquered sin, Satan, death, and he's ruling and reigning. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So let's live a holy life unto the Lord. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you raised Christ from the dead, that we will be saved. That if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and we believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you for the gospel by which we are saved. And we thank you that from an overflow of our love for you, that you have given us the power through the Holy Spirit living in us to live holy lives unto you, to be separate unto you, to be sanctified, Lord, to be different from the world. May you convict each of our hearts. May you show us how you want us to individually live unto you, Lord. And may we spurn one another on to love and good deeds. May we come alongside each other, Lord, in this race as we look to the finish line as Jesus has finished the race, as it says, and he's, in a sense, cheering us on, rooting for us, and ready to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So even though we, Lord, at times feel weak and frail, Lord, may we pick each other up and help each other cross that line so that we can one day be with you and glorify you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.